The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. There are entrepreneurs and business leaders that are making so much more than profit in their enterprises. They're also giving back to the community, and so can you. Welcome to Be More, Achieve More, inspiration for the entrepreneurial mind with host Chris Cooper. If you are looking to make the most of yourself and your business, then you will want to stay tuned for the next hour. Here's your host, Chris Cooper. Hi, this is Chris Cooper of BeMoreAchieveMore.com. I'm delighted to be with you for yet another week and to be talking about how you become world-class. Firstly, I just want to say thank you to Craig Goldblatt, who was my guest last week. Uh, Craig uh, is a tremendous uh, character. He was talking about challenging life and certainly somebody who does. If you're interested in, you know, sort of deep, meaningful conversation and, uh, you know, a slight, slight spiritual nature in some places, as Craig was talking there about, uh, you know, about what he's done. Uh, he's just in his world of speaking, but also uh, he's he's somebody who's out there who is just open to school in West Africa, has his own charity and, um, you know, gives a lot. So I think it's a really interesting one to listen to and some good thoughts there for business as well. So if you're not listening to that show, uh, do check it out in the archive. So to today, a couple of years ago, I found myself sitting next to my guest today at an event in a place called South Shields, which is near Newcastle upon Tyne in the north of England. And little did we know uh, that that chance meeting would lead to um, what it has, because Simon's been a guest on two very popular shows to date. He brought Chris Cook, a double Commonwealth Golds winning swimmer, and then the world ultramarathon record holder Andy McMenemy onto the show. And the latter show with Andy won a Business Gold Award for being one of the 24 best self-development resources of the year by a small business owner magazine. So today I've got some news that I want to share because Simon and I have agreed that Simon's going to become a monthly host on this show and provide also occasional holiday cover for me. For me, I think this brings a really experienced personality into the show. There's a slightly different angle for me because his background is sports psychology and a new mix of fabulous guests because he's highly connected and it gives me a week off to do a bit more client work and, and get myself a bit more organized as I've been doing running this show now for my own for two and a half years, obviously with uh, support from Voice America and a few people around me, but I've been hosting it. So I think it's a really perfect scenario. So we thought today that it'd be great to start if I interviewed Simon this month as a lead into his new role on the show and welcome him on. Or perhaps I might need to refer to him as Prince Hartley, because my wife said to me, looking at the photo book off of him, he looks a bit like Prince Harry. So his wife probably doesn't know just how lucky she is. So to today's show, how do you become one of the very best in the world in your chosen field? An aspiration that might seem like a pipe dream for some, but has become a reality for others. How do people become world class? How do world class performers think, make their decisions, take on their challenges? And how can we begin to adopt these characteristics to boost our own performance or the performance of our people? 
These are questions that Simon Hartley has been answering for quite some years now. He's a globally respected sports psychology consultant and performance coach. He helps athletes and business people to get their mental game right. He's worked with gold medalists, world record holders, top five ranked professional athletes and championship winning teams. He's worked in premiership football, premiership rugby, first class county cricket, Super League, golf, tennis, motorsport and with Team GB Olympians. 2011 saw the publication of his first book, Peak Performance Every Time, followed by in 2012, How to Shine, and in 2013, by Two Lengths of the Pool. How to Shine being published by uh, some show friends of ours, um, Capstone. Simon also delivers an array of B-world-class events and conferences. For 10 years, he's applied principles of sport psychology to business, education, healthcare, and the charity sector, including projects for some of the world's leading corporations and foremost executives. He's also an international professional speaker. He delivers keynotes throughout the world. So a big welcome to my new co-host, um, Simon Hartley. Hello, how are you? Fantastic, thank you. How about yourself? I'm very, very well indeed, thank you. Very well. Excellent. Well, great to welcome you back onto the show. Uh, or, just for a start, let's get this sorted. Do you prefer me to call you Prince or Simon? Uh, I think we'd better go with Simon because um, my singing ability is zero. <laughs> we don't want anybody to get confused and think that I might burst into song. <laughs> I've not seen Prince Harry uh, sing yet, but he seems to be able to get. He seems to be uh, somebody who's uh, got a bit of world class performance sometimes. Absolutely, yeah. I think he does most of his singing in bars, though, doesn't he? No, I don't really ever see you getting um, getting mixed up with Prince, the uh, the singer, though. To be quite honest, <laughs> no, probably. I don't think even your wife would make that mistake if she saw the photo of the two of us next to each other. <laughs> do you, Do you want to maybe start by telling us a bit about yourself? And also maybe what led you to this focus on world-class performance? Yeah, sure. Um, as a sports psychologist, um, I, I was often around elite athletes. And um, I, I was always curious to understand why. If I, walked, if I worked, for example, with a group of 20 or 30 swimmers, a squad of swimmers, I'd noticed this group and there were some things that were absolutely the same. These guys arrived in the same place and they arrived at the same time. They left at the same time. They'd have the same coach. They'd have the same training card. And actually, if you look at all of those things, you think there's a, you know, logic might suggest that these people would achieve approximately the same um, end. You know, they'd, they'd get to the same point in their career. But of course, it was massively different. They did not achieve the same success at all. And out of the group of 20 or 30, the vast majority of them might kind of disappear outside of the sport. Some of them might perform at a regional level some might even get to um, a, a national level very few would go on to be internationals and you know a, just a tiny percentage would become world class and I used to ask myself well what was it that differentiated the one that became world class or the couple that became world class what did they have that the others didn't and you know that when you when you think about it you might think well one's taller maybe that's you know they've got a physical advantage um, maybe they've got bigger hands or webbed feet or something. Maybe that's what makes them a better swimmer. Maybe they've always been great ever since they were, you know, tiny and first got into a pool. And the thing is, none of those things were true. It wasn't the tallest or the strongest. Um, and sometimes it wasn't the one you'd think that was classically talented either. They're not the one who was just great at swimming since they first entered the water. And so that that's where these questions started to kind of emerge in my mind. And, uh, uh, you know, I just had to go out and answer them. <laughs> I'm just, just kind of interested to, to sort of step back a bit further. 
and just ask you, I mean, how did you get into this? How do you get into sports psychology and end up working with with the, you know, the kind of people that you work with? Well, well step one is to fail some exams. Um, <laughs> so uh, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a pilot in the Navy. And um, when I, I think I must have been about 17 years old, uh, they sent me for some flying aptitude tests to find out whether... Uh, you know, I, I just have the brain that understands how to orientate an aeroplane. And it became blatantly obvious that I just didn't. Um, there were there were three levels. Um, one, you had the aptitude to become a pilot. The second one, you had an aptitude to sit next to the pilot and be an observer or a navigator in the plane. And the third one was that you could be an air traffic controller and they let you nowhere near the plane at all. So I was told that if I wanted a career in flying, it was as an air traffic controller, which I didn't really fancy. Um, and once I'd, you know, once my chances of flying had disappeared, um, so had my chances of passing maths or physics. Um, I only studied them because I wanted to fly. I didn't really have an interest in either of them. Um, so I flunked them and I had to go back and study again. So when I when I went back and uh, chose some new exams to study, I chose sport, and I found you know I, I was interested in sport anyway as a kid, and you know played rugby and football and uh, and ran around a lot. Um, so I studied the science of sport. I wanted to understand you know how it all worked, how the body worked, how the mind worked, um, uh, more about coaching people, and I just kind of got deeper and deeper and deeper into it. Um, and, and sports science is quite broad. You know, you study physiology and you study the mechanics of movement and you study psychology and even philosophy and sociology of sport. And gradually you sort of narrow down into those areas that are of greatest interest to you and that you have most ability in. And psychology for, for me was the one that I sort of narrowed down into and started to practice. Um, so, yeah, really, it sort of it, it started with some fairly humble beginnings. Actually, it sounds, it sounds a bit safer than flying a plane in the navy i suspect it probably is yeah so uh, it's 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 uh, good to be talking to you we might not have been talking to you if you're doing the first job quite possible <laughs> yeah especially having failed the aptitude tests and yeah and all the conflict that we've we've seen uh since i mean so what what are um, thinking back about that that career i mean do you have you must have some particular memorable experience of working with world-class performers that really kind of stand out in your mind yeah, there are some. Um, I mean, Chris Cook, who you and I um, had spoke to and, um, on the show a, a little while ago, he and I worked together for probably seven or eight years as sports psychologist and athlete. Um, and when we started working together, he was he was nowhere on the world stage. He, he wasn't even a, a full England or GB international. Um, and, and he come back from the world student games pretty disappointed with his performance um he was only he only recently become one of the top four in the northeast of england so you know he, he was he wasn't really on the world stage at all and when we finished um seven eight years later as he retired after the beijing olympic games uh he was the seventh fastest in, in history in his um in his event which was the 100 meters breaststroke and from my point of view uh, you know, there was a deep relationship that Chris and I developed from working together for all those years. But it also gave me a, a real insight into the journey that somebody could um, could take to go from literally being nobody to being a genuine world class performer. Um, and so from my point of view, it's memorable in all sorts of ways. Great because Chris got there and he won gold medals along the way, um, but more because we started to understand how you become world class from being nothing. Um, and, and from my point of view, the, the sort of 
really enlightening part of that and the very motivating part of that is that if Chris can do it, anybody can do it. Um, he, he didn't start off being special. He started off being very, very ordinary, but he became exceptional. Yes, and very, very hum- I've met Chris and he's outside of the show and very humble guy and, and a very you know, a very normal guy, isn't he? Very, mm. yeah. um, very relaxed Absolutely. to be around. And, you know, it's fascinating. It was fascinating looking at that journey. I've actually you know, shared his journey with my my son uh, to inspire him with his swimming. Mm. Um, so what I'm, I mean, what I'm interested in, too, is what you think, you know, business can really learn from high performance sports people. Um, you know, you're, 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 I suppose you see this on two levels because you're an observer of it, but you also have your own business, too. Yeah, true. Um, you know, one of the things I started to kind of explain to people more recently is that there's a, a misperception that I apply sports psychology into business, that it's a myth. Um, the truth is that I apply human psychology into sport and human psychology into business. And one of the reasons I looked at not just athletes, but world-class performers across the board in, in a, a huge variety of disciplines is because I wanted to understand what it is that makes a human being world-class. And I find it an awful lot easier to apply human psychology into business and human psychology into into sport. Um, I, I, I guess I, I understand and more and, and can explain more to businesses how they apply this stuff if it doesn't look like we're trying to apply sports into business. And I think many people have struggled in the past because they don't see how sport and business kind of transition or, or the mindset transitions from sport to business. But, you know, if you look at world-class performers across the board, there are some very, very simple things that you see in world-class sports people that you also see in, in many other world-class performers. One of those um is that when when they get to the top of their game, um, there's a point at which the effort and energy you need to invest into something massively outweighs the gains that you get. When we're novices, we can put in a relatively small amount of effort and we gain quite a lot. But when we get towards expert, we have to put in an awful lot of effort even to get a fraction of a percent um, gain in our performance. And there's a point at which many performers would start to say, I'm not sure whether that's worth it or not. I'm not sure whether all of that effort just to get half a percent gain is actually worth it. It's the same in business. It's the same in any um, walk of life. Those people who do keep putting the effort in, knowing that they'll only get a tiny benefit and they keep investing and keep investing and, and gain half a percent, you know, sometimes it takes them months to do so. They're the ones who tend to end up becoming world class. But it's not necessarily applying a, a high performance sport principle, but actually a high performance human principle. But I guess the, the rewards, though, from you know putting all that effort in to become world-class it might only be a percentage increase in your performance but it makes all the difference doesn't it between um no medal and a gold medal or maybe um you know a modest performance in, within a business to maybe an outstanding performance so the the results although the the gain personally could be small sort of physically or um, from all that effort that you put in actually the potential result could be huge couldn't it Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, there's, there's um, a, a principle by which many athletes work, which is that they continually just build up tiny, tiny, tiny little gains in their performance. Um, British Cycling have, have sort of coined a phrase, the accumulation of marginal gains. 
which is really the mindset that if you want to gain a tenth of a percent, you start by gaining a thousandth and then building them up into hundredths and then building those up into into tenths. Um, but the same actually applies onto business. That same mindset does apply quite literally. I was talking to um, a, a big global corporation um, and doing some work with the executive leadership team. And we were talking about how this applies onto finance. If you want to save a million, let's start with saving a tenner. And then let's start saving a tenner a hundred times. And can we save that then ten times? You know, can, can we can we crack this thing by actually breaking it down the same way an athlete would break down gaining a second in their performance? And that's, a, that's a really good point. You know, my, my mind suddenly went then to thinking about you know people's home finances. You know, looking mm. try, trying to shave a tenner off your bills a month or or you know, absolutely different components of your expenditure. Actually, it can yeah. it can make the difference between you know you having lots of money in the future or, or things being really tight or as somebody I know having to sell their home because they can't afford it actually if they've been looked at looked after the money a bit easier I suspect they wouldn't have had to do the latter that's right you, you can apply it up to getting out of debts you can apply it to um, sales I mean um, as you know um, we delivered be world class as a company delivered some conferences in 2012 um, and I was asked how do you sell 300 seats um, and I said, well, one at a time. <laughs> um, and, and that's that's literally how you fill the auditorium. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a human mindset again. But athletes have been doing it for quite a while. It, you know, many successful businesses have been doing it for quite a while. But there are some very simple principles which can really help both. And that's just one of them. Mm. Great. Great. And um, where do you think business get it wrong? Uh, I think businesses get it wrong in the, in the same way that many sports people do. They look for the outcomes and they look for the results. They don't look for the processes. Um, if we look for results and judge people on results and judge success and failure on results, people may be getting the results, but they may not actually be doing things very well. And the likelihood is that the results won't be sustainable. If we focus on doing things well and making sure we execute the processes consistently at a really high level, we will get the results over a period of time. Um, I, I'm a really great believer that the processes, uh, sorry, the outcomes follow the processes over a long period of time and that you can get blips in between times. You know, you can play really well and, and lose a game. But if you continually do really, really good things and keep improving your processes, the end result is that over the long term, those things all kind of iron out and, and you'll get good results over the long term. But you focus on the processes. Yeah, that makes a lot, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, uh, something something I've, I've, I've kind of learned to try and do, and, and I've certainly at times in the past not done it well, is you know, having lots of things on my mind, lots of activities that I'm doing. Uh, and sometimes because you've got other activities to do, you, you're not focusing fully on the task in hand mm. uh, and then it can go awry um, yeah i often ask athletes and, and i will have conversations after their performance they'll tell me whether they won or lost and i say i'm not interested i'm going to ask you two things how good was your game plan and how well did you execute it that's what i really want to know we're going to go to commercial break now. Uh, after the break, uh, Simon's going to share with us the characteristics of world-class performance. I'm going to ask him lots of questions around it to really start to hone down about what is it and what can we do to really raise our performance to another level. So we'll be back with you again in just a couple of minutes. 
when it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential? Chris Cooper supports business leaders and high-potential individuals to achieve greater success in their businesses and careers. Support includes the opportunity to join a high-return group mentoring and mastermind program called the Achiever Program, one-to-one mentoring and coaching, facilitated leader development workshops and speeches. Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no-obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you. We spend 70% of our week in the office. What is the difference between enjoying your job and enduring it? The number one motivator is a positive work environment. And that's where Real Recognition Radio comes in. Join your hosts, Roy Saunderson and S. Max Brown, as they take a look at the positive factors of the workplace, such as employee rewards, recognition, incentives, and much more. Tune in to Real Recognition Radio, Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to Be More, Achieve More with host Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to info at bemoreachievemore.com. That's info at bemoreachievemore.com. Now, back to Chris Cooper. Hi, this is Chris Cooper. I'm with uh, Simon Hartley, uh, who's a psychology consultant and performance coach and is shortly going to become the co-host on this show with me. And we're talking about uh, world-class performance. So, Simon, do you want to just quickly outline the characteristics from your experience and all of this observation and work that you do about what are the characteristics of world-class performance in your view? Yeah, sure. Uh, When I looked at world-class performers from all sorts of different fields, from chef to barista to a mountaineer and a polar explorer, I, I, I found there were eight things that they all had in common. And to be honest, they weren't the eight things that you probably expect. They're not the obvious things. Um, for example, it's not that these guys have got drive and determination and dedication. They have those things for sure, but actually that doesn't differentiate them from their um, from their peers. It doesn't set them apart from people who are not world class, because the truth is there are millions of people on this earth with drive and determination and, and dedication who aren't world class. So the, the eight characteristics are those things that differentiate world class people from the rest. Um, very simply, they, these eight are that they have a dream or more specifically, they have a passion. Um, they focus on the next step, the one that's right in front of them. They keep it simple. They don't compromise. They push the envelope. 
They're mentally tough. They take responsibility and take control over what they do. And they're very happy to be themselves. Excellent. Well, what I'll do is I'll ask you some questions around some of those points. Um, I've got uh, some of those written down. And I think the first thing around those sort of principles, I mean, I'm sort of thinking many people have dreams because your first point was about, you know, they dare to dream or something like that. They follow mm. through their dreams. But I just wonder, you know, are some of those dreams wise because some might not be. I mean, how do you know if you have a dream that you should follow? I mean, once upon a time, I wanted to be a rock star, for example. You wanted to fly planes in the Navy. Um, I think uh, I probably have a better life not being a rock star. <laughs> how do yeah. you know? Well, I think, how do you know that you're in love? Um, I think the dream that's a real burning passion in you you probably recognize is a dream, a real burning passion in you. There are some people who recognize it, but then squash it because it's not realistic, is it really? It's not very sensible, is it? What would people think? There's no way I could do that. And and so what they do is the, the dream's there, but if we think of it like a flame, they just kind of, they stop feeding it. They don't put any more fuel on it. They deprive it of oxygen, and before they know it, it kind of goes out. Um, I think everybody has a dream. Everybody has had dreams. The ones that you should follow, I think, are the ones that are genuinely ones that you, you have passion about. You know, passion and love are very, very similar, which is why I asked the question, how do you know if you're in love? You know when you love something. Um, I don't think, by the way, that it, it has to be a lightning bolt moment. You know, I don't think it has to be Cupid's arrow love all the time. I think love can grow. And I think you can start by liking something, being quite interested in something and gradually really starting to love it. Um, so I, I think we do know. Sometimes we deny that we know. You know, I suppose sometimes you've got to take some steps, steps forward. Like you, I think you've articulated there to know whether you do like something or not i can remember just going back years ago with a with a, I was studying economics at a level and i've been just been estimated that i would get an e which is a very low pass grade yeah. so yeah. I, I was determined i was not happy about that so even though i didn't find the subject that interesting i and I, I dedicated my easter holiday of three weeks to actually and um, just study economics and i studied it every day by the end of those three weeks i absolutely loved it and I'm getting, I end up with a school economics prize for getting a, a top grade in it in the end. Um, mm. But I, I, came out, I came out of it absolutely fascinated by it. And, you know, when I talked to the, the guys um, who I interviewed when I wrote How to Shine, James, the world barista champion, um, took a job uh, demonstrating espresso machines in a, in a department store. And at the time, he didn't even enjoy drinking coffee. It was just a job. But it was a job that he started like you you know, described with economics, started to just become interested in, you know, what what does it take to make a great cup of coffee? And why does that guy keep making coffee that's better than that one? What does he do? Um, and then he started to learn all about different types of coffee and the freshness of the beans and the grind and, you know, all of those things, the contact time between hot water and coffee. Um, it, all of those things go into making a great cup of coffee. And, and having made, you know, I, I worked for a while with a with a cafe restaurant business and got taught how to make great coffee. It's an art and a science. Um, and it's something you can become genuinely kind of intrigued and almost geeky about. Um, and, and so he went through a process of falling in love with it. 
But he could have decided at one point that there was no there was no real career path in coffee. You know, you either make coffee at Starbucks or Costa or whatever, or, or you know, that, if that's the career path, then oh, well, maybe I want to choose something else. But he didn't. I should probably just uh, perfect opportunity there to just mention next week's show because on next week's show I have Joseph O'Hara, whose uh, business is coffee, and Joseph, mm. Joseph uh, had a a passion for coffee which he took into a career and now he employs baristas and they provide barista services and they roast coffee and they have their own store now um shop and they do, and they provide um coffee experiences around the world so but just mention that because it's a really nice lead into next week's show yeah yeah so yeah it's it i think it's a matter of understanding that if you are becoming passionate about something if you do genuinely love something maybe it's honoring that that's the key yeah, great. So we need to we need to really, you know, a bit like falling in love. It's something that you you fall in love with, and then uh, it gives you an indication that you should follow follow through with that dream. Mm. Um, I suppose there's, there's a bit of uh, you know, it's making sure that you're not being having people saying you can't do it and stuff like that. But I'm also mindful of probably people listening who sometimes watch into something like a, a talent show or an X Factor or something like that and see people who have this dream but actually don't have any ability whatsoever. <laughs> True. Yeah. Um, equally, if like Chris, he had a dream of being um, a hundred meter breaststroke Olympic champion. But when he was a kid, he wasn't really that good. Yeah. Um, he kept going and became better and better and better and better. And whilst he was never the Olympic champion, he was the double Commonwealth champion. He was one of the top far- 10 fastest in history. He didn't get far away. Mm-hmm. I think it's a really good, really good point. So we shouldn't uh, shouldn't let anybody put uh, water on our dreams. Um, let's, uh, well, apart from Chris's, obviously water is <laughs> fairly essential. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, let's let's move on to <clears throat> the second point, which is about keeping focus. I mean, how do you keep that focus on the next step and actually ensure we follow through with it and just keep doing it and keep moving forward? Well, the the trick here is to understand that our focus follows our interest. And so we have to be more interested in the next step than we are in the destination. We have to be more interested in the journey that we're on, not just the destination. And it means that we have to be more interested in the process than we are in the outcome. I I had a a conversation with a tennis player and um, he thought I'd gone stark raving mad when I said to him, you have to be more interested in how you hit the ball than where the ball lands. And he said, but that's ridiculous, you see, because if the ball lands one side of the little white line, I lose points. And if the ball lands the other side of the little white line, I get points. I said, yes, I know, but you still have to be more interested in how you hit the ball. Because when you are, you'll actually pay attention to how you hit the ball. You'll focus on how you hit it, and then you'll get the right weight on the shot, the right um, spin on the shot, the right trajectory of the shot, because you'll be focused on how you're hitting it. And so if if we understand that mindset, we can understand that in order to focus on this step and in order to lose ourselves in this moment, we have to be utterly, utterly embraced, you know, kind of uh, uh, immersed in it because we're interested in it. And I guess you see that example in, in big tennis matches when <clears throat> someone thinks they might be about to win Wimbledon or something like that. They get so focused on winning Wimbledon that suddenly the game starts to go to pot. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, it's the same with businesses. If if, if a business person says, you know, I, I'm focused on 10 million turnover this year or 10 million in sales or whatever it happens to be, they might stop actually paying attention to 
delivering really good pitches and making sure that what they're offering the customer is exactly what the customer needs or even listening to the customer in the first place. Mm. You know, those are all the things. They're all the steps, the, the parts of the process. World-class performers are world-class because they are brilliant at performing. And to be brilliant, you have to lose yourself in the moment. You have to be able to focus on this moment. Yes. I suppose that <clears throat> that raises an interesting point too about small business. I've often been on courses and programs where they're trying to get people to you know, say what they're going to achieve by the end of the year. Oh, yeah, they can achieve half a million pounds, a million pounds. <coughs> the reality is that maybe they'd have been better off focusing on achieving 50,000, 20,000. Yeah, or just the next pound, yes. the next dollar that they're, that they're trying to accumulate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So in, in this um, complex world, you talked about uh, keeping things simple. How do we keep things simple? Well, I think if we realize that they probably are innately quite simple anyway, um, Confucius said, life is simple and we have a, um, a way of making it complicated. I think we add the complexity. So if we understand that we've added the complexity, we can also strip it out. The world-class performers keep it simple because they look for the simplicity in it. Um, Chris the swimmer that we're talking about, Chris Cook, for years and years he thought his job was to win and he thought his job was to make the British team and he thought his job was to break records and you know all of those things. None of those things were ever his job. He was a 100-metre swimmer and he swam in a 50-metre pool. His job was very, very simple. He had to swim two lengths of that pool as quickly as he could. And when we understood that and all the bits of it, it became uh, a real kind of game-changing moment for Chris, probably a life-changing moment if you, know, if you ask him. Um, because one of those parts of it was that he was going to swim two lengths of the pool as quickly as he could, not quicker than somebody else. So we brought it back to something that he could control that was really, really simple. Actually, he'll say the greatest challenge was keeping it simple by not allowing all of that other complexity that you get tempted to get yourself caught up in to come and infiltrate it. But just to keep it really simple and keep working on doing that. It requires quite a lot of discipline to keep doing simple things consistently over a long period of time. Mm. Definitely. How, how do you think um, you know, business can really utilize that concept? Well, I, I've used exactly the same concept with businesses from, you know, multi-billion dollar global businesses through to, you know, sort of half a dozen people in an office. Um, the principle is exactly the same. I, I, I go into a business and I ask them, what's your two lengths of the pool? What's your equivalent to Chris's very, very simple job? And it takes some of them quite a while. Um, what I tend to find rather ironically is that if you get a group of people who know each other and know each other's jobs fairly well, They'll look around and say, oh, I could do yours very easily. Yours is dead simple. But mine, well, mine's a little bit more complicated. Mm. Um, and, and the perception, of course, is that their job's simple because we can see the simplicity in it. You're a salesperson. All you've got to do is sell as many widgets as possible. Yes, yes. Well, yours is easy. You're the finance director. All you've got to do is make sure we uh, make more than we spend. That's easy. So I have, a, I have a, a client that I'm working with at the the moment, a, a company, and the, the the managing director has that ability to make things simple and really clear. And and where, whereas I'm leading a very complex project potentially, you know, he's briefed to me at the start. Is all I want you to do over this time scale is just get come back and give me a sense of the essence of what what this project 
could be. Um, so I've just gone out and visited lots of really interesting sites around uh, some in Europe and the UK to get a sense of what this development could be like. Um, but actually, if, I, if, I, if I'd had other leaders that I've worked with, I've, I've worked with, they'd, by this moment, they'd have multiple streams of activity going on to take you to the end goal. Whether, but, but, but you know, for him, you've got to get up, up front. You've got to be really clear about what this is actually going to be. And he's absolutely right. It's 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 going to pay enormous dividends that we've taken the time. We've not gone up and started building something or requesting planning for something without knowing what we want first. Mm. And of course, the truth is. The more simple and clear something is, the easier it is for us to do it. So we give ourselves a better chance of performing at a really high level consistently. Yes. And so, again, if you if we look at what makes a, a world-class performer be able to perform at that high level, it's because they just keep it really simple and therefore they're able to deliver high performance consistently. Absolutely. We've got three minutes to commercial break. So let's let's move on to talk about compromise. You say don't compromise. What do you mean? Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, world-class performers, like everybody else, they do have to compromise at some point in some way. What they're very clear about, though, is the things that they will compromise and those things they absolutely will not compromise, those things that they will protect at all costs. And when I see them making decisions, uh, Kenny Atkinson, the twice Michelin star chef, made several decisions to take a lower salary and a demotion in his job. Um, so he he you know, maybe go to a sous chef and assistant chef and then drop down to a chef de partie um, and take a, a reduction in wage because he wanted to move into a better kitchen where he'd learn more and progress more as a chef. So he, he was saying, it's more important for me to progress my career, learn more and become a better chef than it is to earn a higher salary. Hmm. He said, I will compromise the salary. I won't compromise my progression. Um, well, Bristol champion James Hoffman makes many, many decisions in his business. He also roasts coffee. Now, he makes a lot of decisions which compromise profit, but not customer experience and not quality, because those things he absolutely will not compromise. Yeah, yeah, that makes a makes an awful lot of sense. Um, so, so we've got to make sure that we don't compromise. But how, so how do we how do we push the envelope? Pushing the envelope means stepping outside of our comfort zone. It means going beyond what we already know and what we know we can do. It means moving outside of familiar territory into what I call our discomfort zone. Now, world-class performers happily do it and happily push things as far as they need to push them, sometimes to breaking point because they know that unless you break it, you don't know how far it can go. They'll do it because they don't mind failing. They don't mind making the mistakes because the thing that obviously goes uh, uh, in the same territory as pushing ourselves out of our discomfort or into our discomfort zone is that we will fail. We will make mistakes. Um, they don't mind that. They're happy to do so. And so they push themselves and therefore push the envelope. I think it was when we had Andy on the show and he, he talked about uh, that point that all of your potential lies outside of your comfort zone. Mm, absolutely. And I thought that was a really that really stuck with me. That's right. When we take on new things, inevitably, we're not going to do them. We're going to screw them up. Um, and lots of people back away from that um, that opportunity. They don't want to screw things up. So they'll just do the things that they already know and are safe doing. Fantastic. So so I've got so far that we need to, you know, uh, sort of focus on our dreams and uh, follow them through. But we keep focus on the next step. 
and uh, rather than the end journey. I really like that. It's really important. And in this complex world, we've got to keep things simple like Chris Cook did. did. Um, don't compromise. I think what I really take out of that is there's a, there's a little saying, which is sometimes a long way round is the short way round. Uh, True. And I think that's uh, what you've articulated there beautifully. Um, we've got to keep pushing the envelope. Um, so we're going to go to commercial break now. And after the break, we should talk about mental toughness. We'll be back with you again in just a couple of minutes. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Hi, I'm Rebecca Costa, host of the Costa Report every Tuesday at 6 a.m. and again at 6 p.m. This week, my guest is outspoken former congressman and one of our country's most prominent gay public figures, Mr. Barney Frank. He'll be with us to talk about the Supreme Court's ruling on DOMA and how the Obama presidency is doing in its second term. Don't miss Barney Frank this Tuesday at 6 a.m. and again at 6 p.m. on the Voice America Business Channel. Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential? Chris Cooper supports business leaders and high potential individuals to achieve greater success in their businesses and careers. Support includes the opportunity to join a high return group mentoring and mastermind program called the Achiever Program one-to-one mentoring and coaching, facilitated leader development workshops and speeches. Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no-obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. tuned in to Be More, Achieve More with host Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to info at bemoreachievemore.com. That's info at bemoreachievemore.com. Now, back to Chris Cooper. Hi, this is Chris Cooper of bemoreachievemore.com and cc1consulting.com. I'm with Simon Hartley of Be World Class. We're talking about how do you become world class and we were talking about the different characteristics of world-class performance. So, Simon, I want to talk now about um, a statement you made, which was we, we simply have to be we have to be mentally tough. Now, is that is that something we need to we can learn or is it simply a decision or is it genetic? Yeah, good question. Um, it, it is something that we can learn. Um, I think mental toughness almost uh, it, it follows our sense of importance in something. Um, you probably remember when we were chatting to Andy McMenemy, um, who ran 66 ultra marathons in 66 days. He tore his Achilles tendon on day two, 
Um, and, and there's a point in time where you ask the question, well, am I going to continue? Can I continue? From Andy's point of view, he he really in his own in in his mind only had one choice. He was going to continue. It it was probably going to hurt, but he was going to go and continue. And the reason he continued is that giving up was, in his mind, a, a far bigger pain than enduring the pain of having a, a torn Achilles tendon. You know, he, he'd he'd spent months and months and months organising 66 ultramarathons in 66 different cities with all of the local authorities, the planning, the everything else. There was absolutely no way he was going to give up. Um, so you could say that Andy's an incredibly tough individual, or you could say it was just too important. Um, I've just finished writing um, a book which comes out in April called Could I Do That? All about how we as human beings take on challenges. And we always get these questions thrown at us. How important is it really? And I think that's where mental toughness is born. It's born as we answer that question. Excellent. Like the title of the book, by the way. Thank you very much. Indeed, <laughs> that'd be good because it, it is a question. You know, we probably we see these people and we think, can we do that? And Andy was tremendous to to talk with. Um, and but you know what he did there was completely out of the you know out of the zone of almost anybody's comfort zone. Really, he's uh, mm. into that zone when we're asking that question. How do you train for that? And he really can't train for that because no one's ever done it before. <laughs> Absolutely, he was very much pushing the envelope, as you said before. <laughs> so, what do you think needs to shift in people to to, to take responsibility? Because responsibility is one of your key points, and I completely agree with you. Um, and responsibility obviously leads to more control. What what do people need to shift? Sure. I think um, the fundamental piece here is that we need to drop the ego. Yeah. Often it's our ego that's depending on us to be successful. We need to win. We need to um, we need to achieve the outcome. And so because we need to win or we need to achieve the outcome, we don't really like making mistakes or admitting that the reason it didn't work was because of us. And so what we do is we, we look for what seems like the more comfortable option. We'll blame something. Well, look, it must be due to a circumstance. It must be somebody else's fault. It couldn't be us. We didn't make the mistake, surely. And we do that because we need to think that we're doing okay and that we've performed. If we drop the ego and now we don't need to be successful, all of a sudden that opens us up to be able to accept the mistake. And then when we accept that it's because of something we did, we can learn from it. We can change it. Whilst it's somebody else's fault, we have no way of controlling that situation again. If it was a referee's fault, how can I control what the referee thinks? I can't. Well, it's out of my control. I can't do anything about it. And and we disable our own ability to control the com- uh, um, the situation. If we take control, of course, because we take responsibility and we know what we can fix, then we can exert as much control as we can over that situation. Mm. Yeah, cool. Uh, and I think there was a, a point as well about staying true to yourself and true to your passion. Um, how, how, how do you stay true to yourself when, you know, there could be things, I think, particularly in a company where maybe sometimes there's compromise that you feel you've got to make for the business? Yeah, I think, um, first of all, you've got to know yourself. You can't be yourself unless you know yourself. Um, and you have to honor yourself, honor your passion, honor who you are. Um, lots of the world-class performers that, that I've met have made decisions that, quite frankly, aren't sensible. 
they're not normal. And of course, that's why they've become world class, because they make decisions that are not normal. If they made decisions that were normal, they'd get normal outcomes and they'd be just like everyone else on the planet. But they're not. They're extraordinary, not ordinary. Um, in, in Could I Do That? In, in my next book, I, I describe a, pro, a process that's the, the opposite of smarter goals. You, you must have heard of smarter goals. The specific and measurable and um, achievable and realistic and time-governed, etc. Well, I've got this theory that world-class performers and high achievers and those who take on massive challenges, they set dumber goals. Daft, unrealistic, mental, bonkers, exciting and ridiculous. Mm. And, and they're the kind of goals I think Walt Disney set when he built a fairy tale castle in the middle of a swamp in Orlando. Was that sensible? No, not at all. Um, but, you know, I think he'd have been denying his passion, denying his vision if he didn't do it, denying his dream. Dumber goals. I like that. Yeah, I'm a big fan of dumber goals. I like that because I've always felt there was, you know, some limitations around smart can can mm. can, can hold you back a little bit. And there's a there's something to be said for dumber goals. Yeah. Andy, Andy McMenemy certainly didn't set a smart goal by running 66 ultra marathons. That was dumb. It, it, and, and continuing with a torn Achilles. Absolutely. But, but you know, it, dumb equaled world record in his world. Mm. <laughs> so, um, you know, I've got to, I want to ask you now, if you if you're you know, maybe you're you know, boss of a company or you've got, you know, got a team, how would you go about determining whether someone has the potential for this exceptional performance? I mean, or do you, or are you saying that everyone does? I don't know. You know, what would, what would you, what would you see in here in somebody that you feel has got the potential to become world-class? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I'd look for that passion. Are they genuinely driven by a passion, a love for what they do? Are they motivated by the thing or are they motivated by the reward that they might receive? Um, and there are lots of clues to that. Are they genuinely curious? Do they have that relentless inquisitiveness? Are they always asking questions? Are they always looking for ways to better it? Um, are they focused on the processes? And, and there are ways to tell. Um, I, I was working with a golfer a little while ago and he was standing over the shot and he said to me, he said, oh, he said, it's always harder this way round. I said, what do you mean this way round? He said, well, the sun's behind me. So the shadow falls in front of me so I can see the shadow. And I, therefore, I can see the shot when I play the shot. Now, that told me an awful lot about that golfer's focus. He was more interested in how the shot looked and what he looked like when he was playing the shot. That's why he was focused on the shadow. So he wasn't genuinely focused on the process. He was he was really interested in, in how he looked and what other people saw. So are they genuinely focused on the process? Um do they keep things simple? If I ask them what their job is, could they tell me very, very simply, very quickly? Oh, my job's easy. All I have to do is dot, 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 dot. Or would they say, oh, well, hang on, how long have you got? And if it was the latter, they're probably not simplifying things. When do they compromise? What are they willing to compromise? Would they compromise profit or quality? Would they prom compromise profit or customer experience? Those things you can see in people's decisions. Do they push things until they break? Will they uh, entertain the chance of making mistakes and failing? Do you know, I heard in an interview um, a little sentence that you might think shows you a great performer. And for me, it rang alarm bells. This person said, I never fail. Hmm. Now, it, 
what world-class performers will tell you is they fail all the time. They fail far more times than they succeed because they're always, always pushing the limits. When does something become impossible? When does a person get to a point where they go, that's impossible? That just can't be done. My daughter said to me the other day, she had her maths homework, and she said, oh, this is impossible. And I said to her, oh, that's good. She said, why? I said, well, swimming was impossible, but you managed to do that. Riding your bike was impossible. You managed to do that. Um, Whistling was impossible. You managed to do that. Clicking your fingers was impossible. You can now do that. If this is impossible, then that's great. Mm. So when do they perceive it becomes impossible? When do they give up? What would cause them to give up? If something went wrong, do they look to blame somebody or do they look at everything they can possibly learn and to take responsibility for it? So all of those things can tell us whether this person's actually thinking in the way that a world-class performer would think. Yeah, yeah. And things like that, I never fail. I think that just doesn't doesn't wash with people. I remember someone coming, I was interviewing them once and uh, interviewing lots of candidates and someone said to me, you know, they didn't have any weaknesses whatsoever. <laughs> and I said, yeah. well, you must have some weakness. No, I don't have anything. I can do everything, everything well. Um, yeah. So there's no, it, no way he's going to get a job because uh, I've never met anybody who doesn't have any. That's right. And and another thing that I tend to notice when um, – if I ask a world champion to score themselves on a on a one to ten scale on their performance, and I ask a junior athlete, give us a, a, a one to ten score on your performance. Ten is perfect. Ten can't be improved. It's just flawless. The junior athlete will score themselves nine out of ten, and the world championship, will, the world champion will tend to score themselves a four. Mm. And all they're saying is, I can see loads between me and a ten. I can see loads that I need to work on. And the junior athlete saying, I can't see much. There's a lack, lack of lack of real understanding of themselves, isn't it? Uh, yeah, and and what and what still is to be done, what they can do in their performance, and where the imperfections still lie. I mean, imperfections are always going to be there. The question is, can you see them, and are you working on them? Yeah. So we've got about a minute and a half before I need to just wrap up. Um, sure. So just just very very briefly, um, any final messages you'd like to leave us with, and anything you'd like to say about your you know your imminent show hosting. <laughs> Yeah, um, th- there are a couple of things that um, you know it, I'm going to bring to the show because um, I personally think they're of great value. The first one is fantastic guests, um, and uh, the first one next month. I mean, I'd have to introduce people. Probably know um, Mr. Chris Cooper, my first guest next next month. Um, so I've got fantastic guests. You are the first. Um, I've also got an inquisitive mind. Um, and so I'm I'm going to be looking for – I'm going to be asking the questions, well, how does this person think that makes them great? How do they make their decisions? How do they approach their challenges? Um, because I want to get underneath the skin. I want to un- understand the really interesting stuff. Because yeah, you're generally curious. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Brilliant. Any final messages around um, the show content today? Around today, um, I, I finished – when I finished writing How to Shine, the – the little sentence at the end is do what you love, love what you do. And I think if we do, the chances are we'll be very successful and we'll have an awful lot of pleasure in it. Simon, it's been a tremendous pleasure talking with you again today and having the opportunity to talk with uh, with just you today. I'm really excited about you coming along and being a host on the show. I think you will bring, 
bring great guests. Um, once you've got me out of the way, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I know there's going to be some tremendous guests that you're bringing along. You've shared uh, some of the information about some of them. So uh, it's going to be great to listen to Simon's show each, uh, each week. I shall certainly look forward to listening to them. And um, for more information on Simon Hartley, you can go to beworldclass.com. Uh, if you've got any questions or feedback, please send it to uh, uh, info at bemoreachievemore.com or chris at bemoreachievemore.com. Love to hear your thoughts, feelings and views. So, Simon, I hope you've enjoyed being here today. Very much so. And I'm very much looking forward to next month. Fabulous. Uh, me too. So get, all of, all get of, my own back as well. <laughs> I, uh, you're very welcome, uh, uh, Prince Hartley. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to be called next month. Uh, probably set myself up for that. So uh, I should look forward to um, being back with you all again in just another week with Joe um, with Joe O'Hara. Um, he's from a company called Ristretto. Um, he's absolutely passionate about coffee. So a tremendous lead in there from uh, Simon. This guy's actually in Guatemala at the moment, I think checking out coffee bean supplies. Um, but he will be giving us some real insight around customer experience because um, to him, that experience of of of, of uh, coffee and uh, of, of making it and um and, and the experience for customers to enjoy um what they provide is phenomenal and i think this whole concept of customer experience is a really important thing to explore so we'll be back again with you just in another week thank you for listening to be more achieve more Please join your host, Chris Cooper, again next Friday at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time, typically 4 p.m. London on the Voice America Business Channel. Enjoy your week. Music.